You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's May 21st. More than one in three Americans, over 125 million people, are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19. But a CNN poll from late last month revealed that about a quarter of U.S. adults say that they won't attempt to get a COVID vaccine. The reasons people cite for opting out vary, but this raises an important question. Why is skepticism so prevalent? despite scientific evidence that the available vaccines are safe and effective. Of course, vaccine hesitancy isn't new, and it's not specific to COVID-19. But it has been growing in recent years, partly because of the rampant spread of misinformation and disinformation over social media. These changes in the information system represent just one aspect of the phenomenon RAND researchers call truth decay— the diminishing role of facts in American public life. Political scientist Jennifer Kavanaugh, who leads our Countering Truth Decay initiative, recently wrote about the relationship between truth decay and vaccine hesitancy on the RAND blog. Kavanaugh notes that truth decay is a large and complex problem. It's driven by things as small as our individual cognitive biases— and things as large as the deepening political and social polarization in the U.S. So simply stopping the spread of false information about vaccines may not be enough to address vaccine hesitancy, she says. Further actions may be needed. These include presenting scientific evidence in ways that are meaningful and understandable to non-scientists, teaching people how to spot false information, and working to bridge the political divides in society. According to Kavanaugh, failing to take steps like these to help restore the role of facts in America could threaten our ability to end the pandemic for good. Another vaccine-related issue that's been making headlines lately is the debate over waiving existing vaccine patents. This debate is intensifying as COVID-19 cases surge in many parts of the world, including India, Brazil, Egypt, Turkey, and Pakistan. Those in favor of patent waivers typically cite humanitarianism, equitable access, and the benefits of widespread vaccination. Those opposed argue that patent waivers could undermine the entire system of drug innovation. According to Rand's Krishna Kumar, resolving this debate could be messy and time-consuming potentially leading to nothing but, quote, political hand-wringing and government inaction. What's more, he says, vaccine patents are not a panacea, and they may not be the major hurdle in getting the world vaccinated. With or without patents, there simply doesn't seem to be enough vaccine production capacity in the developing world. And even where vaccines are available, distribution, scheduling, and dispensing have been anything but smooth. That's why the global community may want to view patent waivers as just one of many available tools to help speed up vaccine delivery worldwide. Other measures, such as improving supply chains, production, and distribution, are also important to winning the battle against COVID-19. Since COVID-19 hit, nearly half of the U.S. workforce has shifted to working from home. The shift has already reinforced pre-existing inequalities— 
That's because the ability to work from home and in turn reduce the risk of exposure to COVID-19 differs substantially along lines of age, gender, class, race, and urban-rural disparities. Rand experts say that if the shift becomes permanent, it could deepen patterns of inequality as America recovers. So what steps could policymakers, employers, and the public consider taking now to ensure that the future of remote work is beneficial for all? For one, access to broadband is essential to rectify the digital divide in the U.S. More than a quarter of working rural adults lack access to high-speed Internet, so expanding broadband could afford rural populations more opportunities for higher-paying jobs that can be performed virtually. Additionally, the pandemic has highlighted new skills that should be cultivated in the U.S. workforce, as well as the need for the workforce to adapt to new technologies. To fill these gaps, federal and state governments could focus on improving access to and the quality of technical and vocational training, especially training programs that are associated with automation and virtual analytics. In the absence of such policy action, it's possible that employers would move to outsource some jobs to telework contractors overseas. Prosecutors are preparing their cases against the 440 people and counting who were arrested for participating in the Capitol attack on January 6th. Understandably, many people believe there should be uncompromising prosecution of those involved in the attack. But according to Rand's Brian Michael Jenkins, pursuing more severe politically fraught charges such as insurrection, seditious conspiracy, or terrorism may not be strategic thinking. Quote, it's crucial we prevent polarizing society further, escalating turmoil, or galvanizing anti-government sentiment. The goal is isolation, not idolization. Any ability for offenders to claim they are victims of political persecution, victims of oppression, prisoners of conscience, in a word, martyrs, can lead to these very outcomes. Jenkins says that prosecutors could help avoid this martyr label by pursuing charges for more ordinary, less politically-oriented crimes. For example, disorderly conduct on capital grounds, conspiracy to commit a crime, and weapons charges. Prosecutors could also be willing to enter into great numbers of plea bargains. These may be less satisfying, but they would deny the rioters opportunities to grandstand during trial. And perhaps most importantly, history has shown that prosecutions for less severe charges could have a greater chance of resulting in the convictions needed to stop the kind of actions that we saw on January 6th. Secretary of State Antony Blinken closed out a week-long tour of Arctic countries yesterday. His trip, which included visits to Denmark, Iceland, and Greenland, highlights the importance of the Arctic region to some key U.S. policy areas, say RAND experts. For one, the Arctic is critical to U.S. climate policy, in part due to Alaska's strategic geography and economic resources, which include fisheries, hydrocarbons, and minerals. But the Arctic is also important to U.S. diplomacy on climate change. America's place on the Arctic Council is an opportunity to prioritize cooperative decision-making on climate-related issues with other countries. Another reason why Arctic diplomacy is important? Russia. 
in the Arctic, Russia is at the same time a U.S. neighbor, a fellow Arctic nation, with all the responsibilities that come along with that, and an adversary. Renewed and sustained U.S. engagement in Arctic diplomacy could help build a more secure environment in the region. This is especially important as both the U.S. and Russia increase their military presence in the Arctic. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We're off next week, but we'll be back on June 4th. We'll see you then.